0: to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Though music is its chief export, Ghostly International has always been more than just a record label. Formed in 1999 in a University of Michigan dorm, it began as a platform for the Midwest's vibrant but occasionally overlooked music scene, as its musical remit grew to incorporate more geographically and stylistically diverse acts, it also became a hub for visual art and design, and it's forged collaborations with everyone from LA's Beat Scene to Cartoon Network's Adult Swim. With projects like Drip FM, Ghostly has further challenged what it means to be a label in the internet age. Through it all, founder Sam Valenti IV has been steering the boat through each twist and turn. I caught up with him at his home in Brooklyn recently to discuss the state of the label as it marks its 15th year. So Ghostly International started 15 years ago mm-hmm. this year, and it started in your dorm room at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. What was going on in that dorm room?
1: I think I, the, the idea, I think, maybe was uh, even in high school, a little bit earlier than that. I have, like, CDRs that say, like, Ghostly Records and, and whatnot on it from friends' projects. I think the, uh, the concept was... That may have been right when um, electronic music was going through another marketing push in the States. And I think that was like the advent of like Daft Punk's first album and Chemical Brothers and Prodigy. And that, I don't know if it was top up, top down or bottom up, but um, also going to like raves in Detroit and, and seeing how electronic music seemed like a very exciting and like plausible reality at that time. I was inspired by, I was more of a hip hop kid. Like I grew up on. You know, playing hip hop records when I started at fifteen, uh, started DJing like high school dance. I was like, my dad drove me to my first gig and dropped me off, and I've like played my first high school dance. So like, DJ culture was already exciting to me, and then slowly, because of Detroit radio and Detroit record stores, the idea of genreification sort of went away. Where DJs on Saturday ni- Saturday night on JLB or whatever would play ghetto tech into hip hop into jungle into electro into Cybertron and it seemed like a really connected lineage of music, right? Like the regionalism of Detroit the, the, from Mojo and radio shows, you had Prince and Craftwork and car, you know, car, um, sorry, Gary Newman's cars. And that was like, I don't know. It just seemed like plausible. I think right now we don't live in a, in a time when genre really matters, but I think even look 10 years back and it was like, you had to be, you were like a drum and bass person or a hip hop person or a techno person. And, once those barriers fell away I felt like music was really exciting I felt like liberated to try everything because hip-hop always had the sample culture where you could look up okay tripod quest electric relaxation is really um you know a sample from these four songs and then that would take you into jazz that would take you into psych um that was always like an okay transition but once electronic music became part of the mix and I realized that like oh Carl Craig is an extension of jazz and you know we're The lineage is all kind of connected. The idea of a record label seemed exciting because you could contextualize your interest in a way that it was compelling. And I was buying records from Detroit labels and UK labels like Moax were really influential. And looking back and starting to discover Factory and things like that. And you realize a record label is a very, it's a philosophical stance on music that was widely democratic you didn't have to be somebody or know anybody you could just put a record out and if it was good people would play it
0: so was that like kind of the initial pitch the initial concept was to have a record label that was kind of an extension of all of that where genre didn't really make so much of a difference in in what was going to be coming out on the label
1: I think so. It started really as a da- more of a dance, like a house techno label, um, although I was interested in other kinds of music. I mean, with, I met Matthew Deer my first week of school and we kind of hit it off and he was just making tracks and I was DJing and we kind of wanted to hang out and, and do something together. And then we put his record out. Um, it was him and Disco D who I, I consider like a spiritual co-founder as well um, and made a, a a record, hands up for Detroit. There's Dave right there. Uh, he passed away in seven years ago, last month, which is, it's very sad and still kind of sticks with me a lot, but um, yeah, I think the idea was. Once I started hearing, we started getting demos. Once uh, we put out Matt's record, locally, um, Todd Osborne, who still we still work with, had a record store and gave a sold a copy to a guy named Tad Molinix, who um was just a local guy and making really cool music. And i released some like a drum and bass record with Todd, but Todd had made like hip hop stuff and house stuff and experimental stuff and gave me a tape, um, thinking that we want to sign the dance records on it. The James T cotton stuff, the early James cotton stuff, which we did, but we also, I flipped the the tape, like reversed itself. This is dating me a little bit, but auto reverse went, went off. And then the the flip side was all his experimental stuff. And then I, it was so compelling and so, uh, essential that I felt like, well, the label needs to be expanded. Doesn't it can't just be a fixed thing? And that's where sort of the, the, the vision of ghostly and spectral was: was one's gonna be a label that's open form, free form, and one's gonna be a label that's twelve inch focused, dance focused. And it seemed like they were kind of natural yin and yang.
0: Yeah, it seems like mm-hmm. more than than having a specific stylistic remit. Mm-hmm. Um, at least in the very beginning of the label, kind of the first. First few years of the label, it, it was more of a regional remit. I mean, most of these artists were people who were from in and around Detroit or the Midwest more generally. Was that something that that you wanted to do to to focus on this part of the country and the music of this part of the country?
1: For sure, absolutely. I think uh, there's always that sense that if you're missing out, if you don't live on the coast or or in Europe, and I felt like obviously Midwest being sort of a birthplace for electronic music and dance music. Uh, I like the idea, and even the name is kind of a pun, like international is is sort of like uh, everywhere, nowhere, like it, it could be any town, Ann Arbor, it could be any city, and I like the idea of like utilizing, you know, the, the creative talent of whoever you know, and it was all our friends, the designers, the photographers, the musicians, the engineers, it was a very local thing intentionally, not because there's so much talent under every around every corner that is yet to be discovered. So I liked it as a model for A, like the Midwest as sort of a cultural center and reinvigorating that. Not that we were that, but uh, being part of the continuum of Midwestern dance labels. Also, I think the idea that anybody could do it, you know, that like if you lived in any city, there's your friends is enough to make something happen. You know, that we didn't have to sign a big artist to become that was already big to become recognized.
0: I like where international came from as sort of being a, being kind of a pun or kind of an ironic uh, thing to tack onto the name of this label that, that started out as being very regional. What does ghostly mean?
1: It was kind of a feeling. I think ghostly, I kept seeing it. I was uh, I was DJ space ghost in high school, which is so such a daft name, (laughs) but, um, but I, I liked the idea of something being described as you could describe it like, oh, it's it really, sounds really ghostly or that's ghostly. Also, it has a different meaning for whoever is saying or thinking about it. It can kind of be either scary or moody or spiritual or I don't know. I mean, it, just, it has a lot of open-endedness to it that felt right. And then the international kind of like leadens it a little bit like a like it's a company. Like I always wanted it to look like it was bigger than it was. Mm-hmm. And even last night I was at a dinner and someone's like, oh, how many people work at Ghostly? Is it like 40 or 50? I was like, no, it's like. You know, it's like, it's not, it's supposed to look bigger than it is, which is not, which is kind of the inverse of what most, um, electronic music outfits want to perceive as being very DIY and hand stamped. It's a little bit contrarian. I wanted to keep uh, a sense of mystery or confusion around it, I guess.
0: What were some of the labels that kind of inspired you when you were getting Ghostly International going? Like, like, who were you looking to as the, if not as the template like, uh, who sort of created the space in which Ghostly could, could spring up?
1: Great call. Yeah, I think, uh, obviously, a lot of the Detroit lab- the, the Detroit labels were hugely inspiring. I remember also seeing um, on the back of an interdimensional transmissions record, which is for, was from Ann Arbor, now it's in Detroit, uh, and realizing how close that was, and that, like, oh, you could make a record here. You know, and then seeing, going to the record store and seeing... Planet e and Transmat and Metroplex and UR and Direct Beat and Record Time, Melodies in Memory, Street Corner. Usually there was a record store culture that was so f- powerful and so local. And you'd see people bring their records in like consignment. And I just like the idea that it was like a local industry that it was like uh, made it very plausible that you could make a record as well as these these cosmic imports with the little orange sticker and the, the 2X price tag basically. Um, seeing what at the time I feel like what James Lavelle did, which is contextualizing art and design and music. And he was way really way ahead of his time by making product out of his music. Um, historically, obviously like things like blue note, which had like an aesthetic, um, things like factory, which saw the whole of what they did as the label that were really inspiring. Like Anthony Wilson's casket has a catalog number, which is both, really morbid, but also really humorous and really playful. And like the sense that this, your life is this whole thing, right? We're all, the record isn't necessarily the the finished object. It's how you see the world. And I think that a mix of those things, um, I mean, so many labels, obviously, but, um, the idea that, that it was local in Detroit was inspiring. And also the idea that, um, you could do a lot with a 12 inch record. And Carlos Souffrant, one of my favorite DJs from Ann Arbor now uh, in San Francisco, talked about records as this sort of dialogue between each other. That like a record begets another record. They're almost like this call and response. And um, I like that idea of this sort of floating dialogue, as almost like literature, where record the record is the the answer to the question. You
0: know? That's a really cool concept. Do, do you think that that's something that's played out on Ghostly International? That that the records really have been in dialogue with one another over the years?
1: I think unintentionally, sure. Um, and I like the fact that we try to continue to throw curveballs, not not without satisfaction, because that's what ultimately we're slaves to our, our own enjoyment of the music. It's not an academic enterprise. It's an enjoyment-based enterprise. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it's cool. I think when records... You know, I remember when Matt Audion's Mouth to Mouth came out and you started seeing, he was part of a movement towards this sort of 10 plus minute techno song, right? And then things kind of contract and things get spare and then they get full and listening to records from like 2000, even our own old Spectre records are faster. So I like how like there's this sort of gradient. I'm sure if someone did do the math, you could watch the sort of BPMs rise and fall. And I'm sure you could throw an economic indicator on it. You could throw it at weather. I don't know, like geography, but... Yeah, I mean, they're telling stories, and we don't really know where it's going to go. Like, dance music culture is still in its infancy. So I'm, I'm fascinated by what we're building as a community, including every label, every artist. It's We don't know the effects yet.
0: It seems like a, there's always been a lot more at work with the label than just the music itself. Um, there's been a big design uh, influence on the label. Um you, you definitely see a lot of influences that are, like, extra musical coming into Ghostly International. I, I see where the, um, uh, just given the fact that you grew up in the suburbs of Detroit mm-hmm. and kind of all of the music that you would have had access to because of that, like, I sort of see where that came from. I mean, did you always have a an interest in, in design and the visual element that could, could play into the label?
1: I'm not a designer, I, I, so I can't say that I that wasn't my trade. Although I did want to make an impact with the, uh, the design of what we do and, and work with artists, designers who are as talented as the musicians. I feel like it's a fair exchange, you know, because obviously the music is the most important thing, but I think increasingly how we, especially with the digitization of music, even though vinyl is fi- having its, its day again, Um, how we remember songs is still very visual. And I, as a quote about like, you can't hear what you can't see because it has to be a sense of, it's like watching a film score without the film. Sometimes, um, it's evocative, but it's, they're meant to be paired, you know? And I think my visceral memories of discovering like a four AD record and, and even new order was such a big influence, you know, Peter Saville and his minimalism, um, that formed what the music was. I never I didn't I never there was no videos playing at the time. There maybe there was videos but they weren't in them that I saw, but I just my sister's tape collection was like, "Oh, okay, like New Order is this really important band because Substance looks important and cool and like I want to know what that is, you know?" Joy Division Unknown Pleasure Still speaks to people. Disney appropriates their graphics. "What is that?" I don't know. It's just it's just it's, just, it's like a fair it's a fair exchange. You want to give music, the best chance to be perceived. And so I'm all for mystery. I'm all for like opaque, you know, um, the classic Detroit Berlin continuum of like, fuck the rest, like music is the the signal. But I always felt like we could, um, bring another sense into it as well with working with really good designers as well. And so that's been a lot of the joy for me has been pairing designers with artists and, um, finding that connection, like when Mike Chino works with Shigeto, I know they're going to make something cool, and they're going to, you know, have a dialogue about it, and there's some tension there, but that's also, like, I think it reveals another layer to the music as well, and I, I just think design is, every everything is designed, you know, so to pretend like it's not important is, isn't reality, you know, so it isn't about marketing, it's about sati- like, you know, synesthetic satisfaction that you're like, okay, I'm I'm buying into this for myriad reasons. And I want to live in a world that is informed by the music that I love. And I think that that's our inspiration for working with designers or doing collaborations and they're not defensive strategies. They're not revenue generating. I mean, really they're not, um, they're not, the business isn't going to be fueled by, uh, whatever cool collaboration is going on. It's, but it is, I think extended. And a lot of people get excited when we did a coffee with our local roaster in Ypsilanti last holiday. It got more likes than any record we put out. You know what I mean? So I think people do want to be surprised. And they do want to be stimulated. But as long as it doesn't outshine the music, you know, it has, there has to be that balance, you know?
0: You had mentioned that the label kind of began uh, as a way of showcasing this kind of non coastal cultural center. At some point, though, the, the label did start to bring in people. From the coasts, from outside of America, from all over the world, tell me a little bit about that shift in the label.
1: Yeah, I think around two thousand and three or four, we started getting demos um, that were really interesting. Very, you know, a lot of American artists, artists that I felt like maybe were overlooked uh, or had been kind of label hopping or self-published. Uh, I think Solvent comes in around there, North American, if you include Toronto. Uh, Twine Luzine Christopher Willits uh, Jeff White So people who had Been on great labels Like Neil Plateau And Hyman And a lot of really awesome Experimental labels But I felt like Could make Amazing albums And could and Wanted them As part of the crew You know So And I still work with Most of those artists You know And, and I, I like There's like this uh, I think the American Electronic scene In the early 2000s Is really fertile I mean you include The South was really, is overlooked as far as people don't think about it as much, but Miami and Atlanta, between Schematic and Chocolate Industries and Prefuse, Telephone Tel Aviv, uh, Richard Devine, you know, this, they, Miami and the South were actually the first, I think, to pick up a lot of the waves, maybe the post-Warp. The American version of Warp starts in the South, and I think what Hefty did with discovering a lot of talent and and putting, bringing it into like a, almost like a post-rock audience and sort of, um, I don't know, there was just a really, cu- it was a cool time to be part of electronic music in the States.
0: That's really interesting mm-hmm. because it's so easy to think about that era in the States, or there's an argument that could be made for that era in the States, that it that it wasn't so fertile, but that's really only maybe if you're looking at pure techno or pure house or something like that. If you're thinking more broadly about electronic music, it, it does make sense that that was an exciting time to be around.
1: You look at obviously people thought that that club culture maybe died in the era of 9 eleven just that it was not a time to celebrate. It was a, it was a, tar- a dark time. And obviously the, you know the I think the economy leading up to that and the sort of the first tech bubble created a lot of interesting club aspects around the country with DC with Buzz and Detroit with motor and, and that was a club culture seemed very like alive. and I think it's sort of Twilo in New York, right? these things kind of ground out, but I think what it did went back underground as it always does. And out of that came a lot of experimental music. And I even consider like tortoise and a lot of the post-rock electron, that part of the electronic continuum in America. Um, and that's, it was just, yeah, it was just exciting. I think that, I feel like ghostly comes from that, that time where the sort of schism between dance music and a and, lot uh, instrumental and ex- experimental music. And, um, performance. I always saw us as like a group of bands. So we did a lot of like road tours in the early 2000s where we'd just have a van and and Matthew Deere, Dyke House, Midwest Product, Dabry. And we'd just do like rock clubs, which was kind of an untraditional. I remember being at South by and we were like one of the only electronic showcases you could find and like laptops were kind of seen as like, oh, it's not cool to have a laptop on stage. It's not music. It's not performance. Like it was a real derision against electronic music in that Rockest context, you know, and now it's funny because the laptop's like de rigueur, electronic music is like the music, but it's neat to see. It, I, I'm super surprised. I, didn't, I would not have expected Daft Punk to be winning album of the year, I would not have expected vinyl to be sold at you know chain stores. I would not have, ex- I mean, so just even though I was on the beat, I'm really surprised about what's going on. I think it's really. It's really wild, you know.
0: Well, well. The other thing about kind of when Ghostly International began is those really formative years for the label were at a time when like the kind of the line on the music industry was that you're you're in a, an absolutely impossible place. You're starting a label that that is um, pretty ambitious with with what you're doing, and you're starting it at like an, an incredibly difficult time, maybe to start a label with music that has gone pretty underground. I mean that's gotta be a challenge, but does that maybe make it more exciting?
1: Absolutely. I joked that like we ran kind of back into the burning building, you know, like I was using Napster in my dorm room, like the real original Napster and file sharing. And it was clear that like, it wasn't going to be the same. It was also exciting though. Right. Um, so yeah, it was kind of naive or dumb or contrarian. I don't know, but it wasn't the best time to probably endeavor to have a record label. But at the same time, I think that is, the impulse is that you should look at things that are being left for dead and along for maybe like half of our lifespan music has been seen as sort of like a dead or a dying, uh, industry, quote unquote industry. But out of that has come like a lot of interesting renaissances. I mean, I I work now in a neighborhood with maybe 10 independent labels, opening record stores, opening venues, um, building their own realities. I mean, we're building a software company in our office, too, you know so i think without that sort of that life support hadn't been that dream of like the big the major swooping in and signing you or whatever that was dying every day and we dealt with all the distribution issues i got laughed at getting distribution trying to get distribution in the early days i got told to you know basically fuck off um in, in nicer terms um we've gotten dropped by major distributors you know it's just but I think there's an impulse because it feels like it's personal and it this music is so important to people that it just feels like it's worth doing. And there was always like a little glimmer of like, okay, we keep going. We can survive. Like we'd be like down to whatever in our bank account and then something good would happen. It was like just enough belief to say, let's keep going. Like The sub pop joke is like going out of business since 1988 or whatever. Um, and I always think about, I always relate to that, that like, I always feel like, oh, this is like our last year. Like we can't possibly do another year, but like, you know, we, more great music comes out and we discover another way to keep ourselves excited about um, messing with formats, you know, like will design, will Calcut design that totem for Matthew Deere, which opened up the dialogue of what is a non-format, what does post-format music look like? And while that's happening, vinyl is quote unquote resurging, I mean, we never stop selling vinyl, but it's cool to be able to sell it in places that no one else had ever, we never sold it before, you know? So it is like a belief. Uh, you're throwing belief ahead of yourself. And I think artists have to do this all the time and say like, I, someone will be at the show that I book, someone will be there. And I think that's what has made this music and this experience so special is that sense of like a uh, resolute, but like arguably crazy hope that like, just going to make it work. And it, and for a lot of people, people are finding their audience, which is who I never would have, you know, I think a lot of people have gotten their due. Um, a lot of DJs from Detroit, even that, you know, sold me records when I was 15 or 16 are traveling the world. And, and they were like the last guys that were trying to market themselves or whatever. And I think that that's really cool that the work that you guys have done with RA and exposing underground music, that network always was needed. So it's very cool.
0: You mentioned uh, you know, the Matthew Deere, like the Totem Project. Um, are, there, are there some other projects from over the years that really did require kind of a, a massive leap of faith that you're really glad that the label took uh, that ended up paying off maybe when nobody, not even yourself necessarily, thought they would?
1: I think uh, just being open to trusting the artist to follow their muse. Um, you know Matthew Deer with becoming a, a vocal artist. I mean, he always in my mind was a vocal artist. We just hadn't put the records out yet. But you know, he was derided for uh, Matthew was uh, made fun of for performing with a mic. And you know, and I and I and I people have their favorites. And and he's still making um, Audion techno and uh, doing every, DJing and fulfilling all of his creative interests. But I think you just have to kind of trust the people you work with and, um, let them continue to evolve as creatives and vice versa. People have been like, why are you doing this product or this collaboration as if it's like, going to dilute the music. But I think you have to, um, you have to follow those, those whims because otherwise it's, it's too safe. You know, I think the danger of, of the success of electronic music right now is that will become safe, mm-hmm. right? And that's kind of not safe is a weird word because it implies a lot of things. But I think it the tension of dance music being this underground overground thing is what um, has inspired its greatness. And I, I, I saw Thomas Bangalter. I saw him in public, and I remembered you know how he looked from my old Mix Mag magazines. It's about a year ago, and I, I walked up to him. I, I was at a like an event. I didn't wanna be a creepy lurker dude, but I was just like, hey, I just wanted to say I'm a big fan of, you know, grew up on your music essentially. And he was really gracious and uh, kind of explained to me that they've always been against, they, whatever they do is always contrarian to what they did last. Even Tron was different having a, an orchestra or um, in this album being the, the del- deluxe analog, luxurious bubble bath is, <laughs> counter to everything that's digital right now. And I think that that is what makes the music exciting is there's an impulse to rip it up and keep going and try a new thing. And that's, um, I try to honor that with what we do while, while also just letting the, whether it be a free current, free flowing current of what the artist's intentions
0: are. In that sense, Mm -hmm. it, it almost seems like you mentioned Matthew dear that, he he's kind of been I mean, he's been involved with the label since the beginning, but he's such a an artist that's like an embodiment of the the spirit of the label. You know, he he has all of this success making minimal techno, um, but at the same time, really wants to pursue this career as a as a as a pop star. I mean, or if not a pop star, then you know, a Just pop. A musician. Just yeah, someone then, who makes music. Then a yeah. musician. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I would imagine he's been a been a big inspiration for the label, and that it's been kind of a, kind of a nice feedback loop.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Matthew continues and challenges me, inspires me with what he does. And, um, it's just a relentless, uh, drive in creation. And always is tweak, you know, tweaking and honing his skills and trying ideas. And like, it's just a real creative guy. And a, a lot of the artists we work with Osborne, um, in all aspects of his life is tweaking Tad. With JTC and Dabry and other aliases, you know, it's they're real like cur- curious people, you know. And I, I, think that that's I want I wanted to be around artists because the way they look at the world is inspires me. Working with Michael Chena and and Andy Gilmore and Sue Gwen and the visual designers as well, they they're constantly evolving, and so it, it forces you to do the same. You know, you can't really rest on. Um, the template and I think that that's the greatest gift of of working in music is that you're around real people who are really alive and are not just about music but coffee and cooking and whatever they're obsessed with like you're going to hear about it
0: there have been so many interesting projects over the years that have kind of expanded the definition of what, what a record label could be to the point where it's like is Ghostly International even a record label is that the best way to describe it, one project that that I think is especially interesting that's maybe partially related to Ghostly and it's kind of outside of Ghostly as well is um, is Drip. Um, that kind of seems like a a way of leveling the playing field in a way, like kind of changing a fan's relationship with a label. Tell me a little bit about the project.
1: Sure. Yeah, Drip is an idea that we've um, discussed since like 06. There's notes and conversations about subscription and about membership, you know, and we even had like a ghostly card for a while. Like that was just people who bought it at the store. The idea of, of uh, a deeper connection, because ultimately place and cl- being part of a club is kind of what we seek, right? And, and culture, music is is church to people, right? It's a, it's communion, it's um, identity. It, it fills a real deep need. So I think even though we have all these tools to connect often, they're not optimal. Um, they're also, we looked at social media and, and how fantastic it's been for labels. Even piracy has been a huge benefit to labels in a lot of ways. Um, but they haven't connected the dots between support and exchange and like dialogue. And we really feel like this there is a leveling, a democratic nature of dance music, electronic music deserves another uh, platform. And so I think um, with Drip, we really want to create a place where any creator can have a self-sustaining relationship with their fans fans can can dialogue with each other and create their own culture and content um, and also allow people who do want to pay the artist or support the artist to do that in an elegant way that doesn't feel unfair or um misaligned with the realities of the economy you know so yeah great businesses do kind of maybe try to put themselves out of business. Like I like the idea that, you know, that drip is like a post record label reality. At the same time, I think it reinforces the idea that labels are important for their, their curation, right? That the idea of a label is just to cut through the noise. Okay. This is on pan or Hyperdub or DFA. And I can, I can jump at it at the store and I want to like know what that's about. And it's part of a continuum and it's like the culture. So labels have more importance than ever. At the same time, the old, the needs of the label are not production, distribution, manufacturing as much It's more like services and team, you know, it's like being a part of a skate team where you get, you know, a free deck, if you break yours and you have buddies you can go skate with and people can associate you. I always think about Powell Peralta and like chocolate and the old skate brands and how like cool they seem because they were like, you know, you want to be in that club, you want to learn from these guys. And I think that those are the impulses that a label really should have. Whereas technology, music's been kind of dragged by its heels. That the traditional music industry has been let, like put its arms in the air and be like, "Well, what should we do?" You know, and, and it's changing. You know, I think there's a lot of cool companies coming out right now with music technology. But I like the idea that Drip is built by people who love music. A but B, um, understand the financial needs of artists, and that the the idea of a creative middle class is a really inspiring thing for me. Um, my friend Baratunde brought this idea up with me. And if you can have more artists making money and starting families and creating their own enterprises, that's like good for culture in general. It's good for the world. And I want to be part of that revolution. And my co founder and I, Miguel, and, and everybody at Ghostly, we all believe that that's a plausible reality.
0: Yeah. So it seems like drip in a way, I mean, if, if independent labels and independent musicians are getting squeezed by the way, the industry is working now on the one side by like fans who can theoretically get everything for free. And on the other by the distribution model is, you know, kind of based on hardware and based on like these files and stuff like this. And, uh, a company like Apple might have the whole catalog and like, you can You buy your music from them. There aren't really these record stores. It seems like this is a way of um, kind of making that relationship a little bit healthier, kind of giving independent labels and independent artists a little bit more of a shot.
1: Yeah. And I think allowing people to get in at the level they want to get in. You know, I think all this stuff is great. I'm not anti... I think you need all these services, like Mm -hmm. a healthy music ecosystem needs the local record store and the mass Celestial Jukebox streaming service. They all work together. However, the missing, my greatest enjoyment with music has been communal, has been going to record stores and talking. I learned about Lou Reed's death at Capture Tracks and Greenpoint and people were talking about it and just people, someone pulling a record and being like, check this out. And labels do that. I I think labels are like in a lot of ways, the good ones are the the record store clerk, who's like, you know, you may didn't know that, you know, Light in the Attic releases a new age comp, which I had no um, knowledge of the traditional, like the true new age sound. And then they released a curated set that explains to me like how to, they just they just frame it up nicely. And they said, this is why you should listen to this. And so drip allows, it's another vessel for labels to connect. And I think going forward it'll be another vessel for artists to be discovered, to have a dialogue with each other, to earn money from people who want to support them. Um, it's just, uh, it just seems like that's another reality. And if that hurts the label business, I don't, I don't think it will. I think labels will form around drips that people will have their own crews on drip and create their own communities on drip. You know,
0: do you have a sense of how it's going? I mean, do you think that this model so far is fulfilling the purpose that, that, that you guys had, had hoped it would fulfill?
1: Yeah. I'd love it to go further. Um, we're only a few people, so it's obviously, uh, you know, you're trying to put out fires and build at the same time. Um, I think we have seen a lot of success uh, with labels that really want to communicate. Um, it's not necessarily the biggest labels that are the biggest drips. It's the ones that, are the, that make it the centerpiece of their relationships. And so I think it's a healthy part of a balanced breakfast to use the uh, slogan uh, with alongside dig- streaming and a la carte downloads and vinyl if you want to go deeper, we want drip to be an option. And I think that this is a good as good a start as any.
0: Now that Ghostly's been around for like 15 years, I mean, you're at a point where probably a lot of the newer artists that you're signing to the label might be part of kind of the next generation of of producers. Uh, tell me a little bit about like what you're seeing in in new artists that are coming up in the scene. I mean, do you see a lot of connections with Kind of the people you were signing 15 years ago? Or is it like, is the producer like kind of a vastly different sort of artist?
1: Music is, electronic music is such a, it's so ingrained now. We basically get the software upon, you know, Matthew, you would like have cracked Fruity Loops copies, but now it's like stuff is pretty baked in, you know, and I, uh, digital native culture is like, electronic music is as facile as anything and i just think it's cool because it's also opening up like modular synthesis and people want to learn about the guts and the the how the making of what actually is electronic music same with photography like once you learn how to take a cool digital photo you want to learn how to take a quote-unquote real photo so then that's healthy to the impulse to go back but also um yeah i just find i think the the volume is amazing i think like the the fluency and like the um, ability to sort of not think about where stuff fits and just to make stuff is cool. Um, you're using sort of non genres, right? Where you're just like, this is just electronic music, or this is just music. And so I think it's less fixated on um, what came before it, which is cool. Um, yeah. I, th- I in a weird way, I think that this, the next, this generation of, of producers it's inheriting a lot, but it's also like, I like that. It's not too precious that it's, um, kind of like just see what works, you know, it's not so canonical or so rigid about what's real and what's not real. It's like, let's just go and have a go at it. And, um, what's going to come out of that is going to be a lot of interesting stuff, you know? But yeah, it's definitely, it's fun to work with artists of different spectrums in their career and, and see what their interests and needs are. And, um, traditionally we worked with a lot of artists who do incorporate live instruments as well and performance is interesting to me as well like how are we going to evolve performance not just with um lights and video but also the actual like playing you know someone like Shigeto is interesting because he is kind of blending these 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 worlds um but there's a lot of room people do want to people are interested in experiences i think that's why electronic music has kind of found a bigger voice is the show is an experience a communal thing I think vinyl, even though it's a product, is is an experience. You feel like you're even shopping for records is an experience. So, um, the the Brian Eno idea of like art as a trigger for experiences as opposed to an end result is going to drive where this is going. And I don't. And I think we don't know what it's going to be. Whether it's another video game or it's a the idea of non-linear music or site-specific music or self-generated music. I'm still waiting for Instagram for music to happen in a lot of ways. Um, but I like that the sort of, um, shackles have been taking off of music in a way that it's not bound to the object, that it's kind of free and it's, um, but yet if you want a canonical music experience, you can very much have them. It's kind of like whatever version of music you want to get involved in Mm -hmm. is happening.
0: I wonder what, a, what sort of a factor like geography would still be um, for people who are, who are coming up as producers today. I mean, Ghostly International kind of began with this as kind of as a part of this particular geographic situation. Um, I wonder, do you, do you feel like that still exists with the artists that you're coming across?
1: I think uh, Daniel Wang put it to me once. He's like, I think the best music comes from like small cottage industries and groups of friends. And I think that hasn't changed. Um, I think geography is less is less uh, uh, less of a thing than it was, right? Because the nature of music was that it was local. It was events, DJs, and radio, local radio, um, and and advent yeah, of the of streaming and and, and the big boiler room culture is that everyone's getting the same message, and I think that that's um, that's okay. Like I think region is interesting to me in what it brings in its challenges. And I think, uh, you you look at a place like Detroit, uh, or, or Baltimore, or, um, I was just in, uh, I was even, I was in Norway last year and kind of spent a weekend in Bergen, which is, you know, where Reich and Kings of Convenience, a lot of groups came from and just thinking about that communities of people building, musical identities like that won't change you know maybe some of it's done digitally or online but it's still going to be like you you and your mates and and uh i like the fact that that gender maybe is less of a thing i think that's actually the biggest uh shift in a lot of ways maybe more than region is that it's not a boys. it's probably still very male but that that is leveling that i think the digital people growing up on electronic music, making it, it isn't much of, uh, just about guys, you know, and, and there's a lot of crazy, intelligent and, um, wonderful music being made by people of both, uh, genders. So I think that with the dissemination of, uh, of digital tools, um, geography is less centric. Friendship is still like what drives this stuff, I think. And, and, Barrier to entry, which I think is what the great thing about digital music is—is is digital, digitally created music is, has gone away. Yeah,
0: the label now is based in New York.
1: Label is based between New York, Ann Arbor, Los Angeles, and Berlin. And we have people. We have our label manager Jeff Owens, who who really deserves. Uh, you know, the lion's share of credit as far as steering the label enterprise um, since he started in '04 is in is Los Angeles now. Um, half our, a third of our team is in Ann Arbor still, and, and I want to try to keep that. And uh, a third of our team's here, yeah. So I, I, the name actually kind of suits us now, finally.
0: It actually <laughs> is that, that, that international enterprise. Yeah,
1: but I mean, I feel like New York is, New York is a, uh, a great place to rub ideas together and, and also put it on the street and take it to the show and see what how it reacts. But I still like the idea of, of it being a, of a, a regional, Midwestern-born product, so to speak.
0: What's going on in the music scene in the Midwest nowadays? I mean, um, you hear a lot about the situation in Detroit now um, being a very difficult one. Uh, with the economy. Um, how is it as uh, a place for music?
1: My experience uh, has been really positive. Uh, people like Ectomorph are throwing amazing shows. The party culture is really fresh. Um, shigeto relocated to Detroit a few years ago. And uh, whenever I visit him in the studio, his brother has a great band as well. And I don't know it just feels like it will never not be a place to make art you know that's that's one of the great parts about it is it it is truly a creative place it's a very modernist place people dream of the future um even though it's a trope at this point a journalistic trope it it is a place to imagine big and it is a place with with adversity but uh out of that comes a lot of beauty and um i think we're we'll see another wave another wave and of, of artists that come from detroit and places that we didn't expect not just the obvious centers but i would love toledo or uh cleveland or you know a lot of cities that detroit's a good model if detroit quote-unquote can work um in the next 10-15 years if people see it as pulling itself up a lot of cities will model itself after it so not just creatively but economically etc. like it's an exciting time and friends of mine are opening bars and coffee shops and and stores and um there's a lot of hope you know but it's not it's not a blank slate people want to say though like you can buy a house for five dollars and all this crap and i'm just really frustrated people see it as this sort of canvas to be painted on as if it's not happening and it's like no detroit's always been happening it's it's not a blank slate it's a place that needs ingenuity and, and talent and experience, but it's like already has all the DNA, you know? And so I hope it does continue to inspire, um, generations into the future.
0: So it's, it's 15 years of ghostly this year. Uh, does the label have anything special planned for the anniversary?
1: Uh, I think we're going to, yeah, we'll do some shows, do some events. Um, a lot of our artists old and new have releases coming up. Um, Taiko, Fort Ramo, uh, Shigeto, Dabry, Audion. Uh, we signed a guy uh, named Tobacco, who was the group in a group called Black Moth Super Rainbow. Um, Alexi Delano just did a 12-inch for Spectral. A lot of Spectral stuff. Mark E has a new album. Uh, a couple of new signings on Spectral. I'm really excited about Osborne. Um, yeah, it's a good blip mix of. Uh, Christopher Willits, a lot of, a lot of artists we've worked with for over 10 years and artists like Ra- Raja and uh matrix man and new artists that we're excited about. So I think it's a healthy blend of the past and the future and trying not to be too um, nostalgic about it. I think being more about what's next is more important. Like I, there's times and times I don't get me wrong. I love to look back and I love to look at what we've done and, and, learn from it because I always forget sometimes, oh yeah, that was like what spawned, you know, drip came from this and this and this. But I think it's more about like where can what's the value of what we do for the community this year. I'm thinking a lot about education, not in a traditional sense, but um, sharing not whatever knowledge we've acquired or mistakes we've made, um, having more value than just the the pro output that we create. So yeah, I like to continue the art initiative. I think visual culture and, and music has become so much a thing together, and I'm really proud of the artists we work with. And uh, with Drip, just it's also given me the ability to reach out to a lot of my friends who have labels and, and, and artists and talk to them about their challenges and what their experiences have been. And um, I feel a real connection to where we are in 2014. Like, what is this little moment, which is exciting because there's a lot of headroom to grow, but also, you know, it's not going to be, it's never going to be a cakewalk. You know, I I think everyone's is braced for, you don't do this um, without realizing the sort of difficulty inherent. So I think uh, if we can help create tools that enable more creatives to do a better job, then that would be success in itself.
0: I wonder if ghostly even kind of, has created a space where there could be more labels like ghostly. I mean, do you think it's possible that someone sitting in a dorm room in 2014 could put something together that sort of resembles ghostly? Is it a model that's still replicable?
1: I wouldn't advise uh, all of our decision-making. I mean, a lot of it's sort of um, numbskulled, you know, I think, I, I think, yeah, I think the continuum of like creation is, is so fertile and the, the, the union of physical and digital too, has a lot of room, the, the, the experience of that. Um, I mean, I was inspired by Rick Rubin having a dorm room label and, you know, stone's throw and a lot of these sort of bedroom ideas and it's, it's the digital tech equivalent of the garage, right. Of the, 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 the dream of uh, building a building startup in your garage and doing things the long way or the hard way or stamping records and, selling them out of your car, like these are, these aren't going away, you know? Um, the, the modern equivalent maybe is the sort of direct to fan, uh, drip model, but I think you're never gonna, you're never gonna beat personal intimacy, whether it's playing a show or meeting people for experience. So I think the people who are going to be able to blend a real sense of community around their work are great. That said burial and a lot of artists are totally fine, not existing. And that's the cool thing. I like that Def Punk got their Grammys with their masks. Sort of, they sort of maintain their vision all the way to the the stage, right? That that and and Kraftwerk got their thing. I don't think the Grammys necessarily are an indicator of success. I just like the fact that people are going to be like, okay, this music was not considered important, and now or it's not, it wasn't considered real music, even as soon as recent as like five or 10 years ago in this country. And I think it's cool that a generation's going to grow up and see that and go, Oh, this is just as plausible as playing guitar is making interesting electronic music is, uh, as a thing that said, I don't think the, the, the dreams of the past, the, the, um, the, uh, star rocket or the rocket ship success of, the record industry really is, I think that may be, that may be over in some ways. I think, um, Brian, you know, another, another you know, ism is that like, maybe like well, whale, whale blubber was a business until it wasn't a business and then oil and, 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 uh, other heat sources that you can self that you can contain and create were more important. And I think maybe the record industry is traditional record industry is a sort of dream of the past, but like what we're creating in our own ways with the the music heads and the fans right now is way more exciting way more sustainable so i like that we're actually kind of got beaten it's got got its ass kicked the dream got its ass kicked but another dream came out of it and i think that that's what i want our brand to be um pushing is for like a self-sustaining individualistic community which i realize is a Contradiction, But having your own ideas and having the strength and conviction to assemble and disseminate them on your own terms is what techno is. Inherent, fundamentally. So if that can become more achievable by more people internationally, that in itself is a success. And so I hope that we can be part of or continue to be part of that continuum.